Welcome to Encouraging Truths for Today. We're glad to bring you this message from First Baptist Church in Crockett, Texas. Now please join us as we learn to grow deeper in our relationship with God and each other. While you're standing, let's open our Bibles to the book of Philemon. The book of Philemon. As you're opening your Bible there, let's imagine today that, that I got an email. Let's just imagine this. I, this is just fictitious. Let's imagine I got an email from a, a very concerned believer on behalf of two fellow believers that are at odds. And it's not just a, an email to them, but to the entire body to make everyone accountable to help in this situation. Can you imagine if I was standing here about to read a personal email like that in front of the church that involved a very obvious situation that was going unspoken of, but now it's being brought to light and all of a sudden accountability is dropped on the the heart and life of a key leader in the church and the church as a whole to hold each other accountable to follow through and do what it is that God would have those two people do and the church as a whole in that situation. Well, that's exactly what we have in the book of Philemon. You'll recall in the book of Philemon, the Apostle Paul has written a letter. He's written that letter to Philemon and his wife and their son There is a house church in which they worship. So just picture yourselves walking into that place of worship. Your your feet are dusty. You have been walking on a dirt road to come to that place of worship, a place of refuge, a place of safety, and all of a sudden this message is dropped that Onesimus, the runaway slave, is back and he's brought in his hand a note to the church from the Apostle Paul. And the challenge of that note is one of acceptance and accountability. Can you imagine the initial tension in that room knowing that now Philemon, the owner of Onesimus, is facing the challenge of what to do now? now that he's back. As long as he was off and away, it's easy to ignore it, easy to push it aside, but now the issue has come home. And so we have been exploring this story. We need to begin reading in verse 8 to put our text in context today, verses 17 through 19. The Apostle Paul does something very uncharacteristic of himself in verses 8 through 16 in that he he uses that personal pronoun I over and over and over. He's not boasting, but he's setting the context for the relationship he has with Philemon and out of that context, he's asking Philemon to be a consistent Christian man in his response to the return of Onesimus. 
So notice that personal pronoun that leads into his challenge for Philemon. Verse 8. Though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, being such a one as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten, while in my chains, who once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. I am sending him back. You therefore receive him, that is my own heart, whom I wish to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains, for the gospel. But without your consent, I wanted to do nothing that your good deed might not be by compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Then our text. If then you count me as a partner, receive him as you would me. But if he has wronged you or owes you anything, put that on my account. I, Paul, am writing with my own hand, I will repay, not to mention to you that you owe me even your own self besides. Let's pray together. Father, even as we read this passage, we we sense the deep level of vulnerability. Father, we thank you that you do not leave us you never forsake us. And even when it makes us feel uneasy and vulnerable, you have a way of expressing to us what needs to be done that might please you and honor you. So Father, I I pray now that you would guide our time in your word and that you would please speak through me. Because unless you speak, I have absolutely nothing at all to say. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Don't you love how the scripture presents real situations and real people's lives, real challenges that you and I can relate to? And perhaps you found yourself in that vulnerable situation where you were 
uh, living in the role of Philemon, faced with the challenge of accepting a fellow believer that has offended you. Or perhaps you're able to relate, on the other hand, to Onesimus, who has offended someone and, and you're seeking reconciliation and perhaps you've been in that not-to-be-envied position of being in between the two, trying to be the, the means of God's reconciliation in their lives. I think at whatever level we have found ourselves in this story, perhaps we can relate to all three at times. But here's the overarching truth of the passage. When we are offended by others, it has the potential of becoming an obstacle or an opportunity for spiritual growth. When we are offended by others, it becomes a, either an obstacle to our spiritual growth or an opportunity for spiritual growth. Haven't you found that true in your life? Where it'll either bring you down or it'll lift you up in a closer, more precious relationship with Christ. And so our goal this morning should be that we don't allow these obstacles to stay in place, but they, they become a means by which we grow. That's God's desire for every trial we face, every challenge we face, that it doesn't become a stumbling block, but a stepping stone toward Christ's likeness. And so that's where we find the scene here in Philemon, verses 17 through 19, where the, the request is placed on the table. And it is more than a request, but less than a command. And so I want us to walk through these three verses and let this passage unfold for us. Uh, the means of maintaining godly relationships by taking the high road of acceptance and accountability. The first thing I want us to notice in verse 17 is this. Uh, we should respond to the mess with mercy. We should respond to the mess with mercy. Uh, the reality is Onesimus had messed up. Not only had he messed up, he had messed things up. Uh, he had done something wrong. Now the scripture here is not putting its approval on slavery, but that was the situation in which these men found themselves. And in the midst of that, Onesimus leaves and it seems to be implied that, that he stole some things before he left. He left as a lost man. He's returning as a saved man. He left as a non-believer. He's returning as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. A lot has happened in between, but, but the mess is still there that was created by his departure. So how do we respond when we are offended and we think about the other person and we contemplate the need of, of using that more as a stepping stone than a stumbling block. How, how do we respond? Well, I remember years ago as a, a young pastor, I was dealing with a situation where uh, there was someone that just, it, it seemed like they went out of their way just to offend me, to challenge me, to discourage me. 
and I know you've never done this, but I, I came to a time of prayer and, and I, I was saying this to God. God, how do I respond to somebody like this? Have you ever put yourself in that position? Because even my gesture shows you my heart at that point. Father, how do I respond to someone like this? And two words shot into my mind, mercy and grace. I laughed. I said, this person does not deserve mercy and grace. I didn't even get it out of my mouth till I sense the reality, neither do I. But that's what God gave me. Here's the reality. What God gives us, he intends for us to give others. Freely you have been forgiven, freely forgive others. He wants us to be a a conduit of his blessing and his mercy and his grace because he expects the forgiven to be forgiving the grace receivers to be the grace givers he he longs for it to flow through us we're not to become stagnant as a pool inside of us and so here that's the challenge Philemon is facing and so the apostle Paul challenges them him in this sense if then you count me as a partner receive him as you would me. The initial response, I would think Philemon would have to that statement, but he's not you and you're not him. How do I do that? Well, Paul is humbling himself here saying, I am on the same plane as Onesimus. I'm on the same plane as you. It's level ground and, and if you can't receive him, then you can't receive me because we are all fellow believers. And so he's challenging Philemon on a very deep level to respond to the mess with mercy. So how do you do that? How do I do that? How, how does that play out? You know what I found happening in my life at times? I stop seeing the individual and all I can see is the issue. Have you ever been there? Uh, You think about this person, they become an inanimate object. Uh, They become some evil being and all I can see is the issue at hand, not the individual at heart. And that appears to be what God is doing through the Apostle Paul here. He's he's using him to shift the focus off of the issue and onto the individual. Just as I stand in need of the mercy of God, so do you. And just as you stand in need of the mercy of God, so do I. And sometimes the great expression of that comes from one to the other. So the Apostle Paul, as we read in verses 8 through 16, goes to great extent to talk about the context of their godly relationship that they share. We have to keep that in mind. These are godly relationships. You 
you have different rules, you have different parameters when you belong to Christ. And so here's what he's emphasizing. He's saying in verse 8, in Christ, I could be very bold to you. I, I could command you what is fitting and expect you to obey that command. Yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you, he says in verse 9, being such a one as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains, who once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. You see, the Apostle Paul is, is clarifying something very important here. He's saying to Philemon, I don't want you to do this because I want you to do this. That's why I'm not commanding you to do it. I'm, I'm just appealing to you because I want you to do it because God wants you to do it. I don't want you to do what I want you to do. I want you to do what God wants you to do. And in this situation, the two were one, weren't they? It was one and the same, but, but it goes deeper than that. Like, like, why are you here to worship today? You, you could say, well, because so-and-so expects me to be here or because I, I, my marriage is better if I do this for her or for him. It, it could be all those reasons, humanly speaking, horizontal reasons why we do what we do, but, but the reality is that's not good enough. We need to come to worship. We need to enter into corporate worship because that's what God wants us to do and that's where we are to live and how we are to respond to his greatness and his graciousness in our lives. So have you made that step of Christian maturity of moving beyond doing what others expect you to do even when it's good to living by the expectations of God in your life. When, when, when you make that move and that shift from just horizontal decisions to vertical decisions, and you're not asking, you know, what would be acceptable to, to my peers rather than you, you move to, Father, what's acceptable to you here? you enter into a realm of spiritual maturity that he guides you to, you could never experience anywhere else. So the Apostle Paul had experienced that. Here's a man who had been beaten, imprisoned, etc. He had had great experience in forgiving and releasing and even those who preached a false gospel to somehow get up his nose and under his skin, he said, I rejoice in that Jesus is being preached for the false motives, not the false teaching, but, but he went after false teachers, but yet his whole desire was to do what God wanted him to do. And so here the initial challenge is to respond to the mess with mercy. Do you remember those scenes in the Old Testament where Saul is pursuing David and he's wanting to take David's life and then Saul enters into a cave where David is hiding. You remember that? It was so easy to assassinate the king. And David chose not to because he said, far be it from me to 
lay my hand on God's anointed, but, but that's not all of the scene. Do you remember there were people whispering in David's ear to do it? You see, many times to do what God wants you to do, you have to say no to others in order to say yes to God because there will always be someone encouraging you to do what is expected and acceptable to people which would be horribly unacceptable to God. And so many times we are in that dilemma Am I willing to say no to people in order to say yes to God? That's where Philemon was. And if you've ever been in that unenviable position of being bombarded by peers telling you it's okay, they, they did this to you, it's okay, it would be acceptable, it's almost necessary for you to do this, but God is calling you to, to respond with mercy. It's always better to go with what God wants. Because here's the ultimate decision at that point. Philemon faced this decision. And the decision is mercy or misery. Mercy or misery. That's the choice. In reality, you're choosing mercy over misery. Because if you unleash your fury, if you unleash vengeance, etc., just just like all of our hearts initially want to do, you're, you're not just hurting that person. You're hurting someone worse than you could ever hurt them. You're hurting yourself. And you run the risk of living the rest of your life miserable because you chose misery over mercy. Here's some of those miserable points. One particular, you can live with the misery of what God might have done in your life had you responded like he wanted you to. You, you run the risk of that misery of, of wondering why, why you, you can't, really connect with God like you want to in fellowship as a believer. There, there seems to be a barrier there and it, it, it's because you, so, you chose misery over mercy. You, you, you went that route or I went that route. And so the Apostle Paul says in verse 17, if then you count me as a partner, receive him as you would me. It's interesting, the word partner comes from the same root as the word koinonia, the word for fellowship in the New Testament in Greek. That Greek word goes farther than just enjoying each other's presence, drinking Kool-Aid and eating cookies together. It it goes deeper to a heart-to-heart sharing of life, entering into each other's lives and standing together and walking together. The idea of being a partner here, he's saying if if you consider me a companion on this journey of spirituality, if you consider me as a comrade in the battle that rages spiritually in your life, if you consider me as, as one that can be trusted and loved and one that shares fellowship and intimate love with each other, then this is what you must do. 
because the reality is if we have problems with each other, we've got a problem with God. So the initial challenge is respond to the mess with mercy. That means I leave God's judgment in his hands. That means I I leave him to the expression of his wrath, not my wrath. I I leave him to determine people's spiritual condition. I I don't embrace that myself. I, I simply extend mercy where mercy is needed. But then in verse 18, he goes on with these words. But if he has wronged you or owes you anything, put that on my account. Now, if we don't consider the situation which he was writing, this this doesn't make as much sense as it could. So the point I want us to clarify here and The second sense is extend grace instead of bearing a grudge. Here's a man who possibly has no means of repaying Philemon. Uh, He he has become a thief, a runaway slave. Here the Apostle Paul has challenged him to respond to this mess that's been made with mercy and now he's challenging him to respond with grace instead of bearing a grudge. The Apostle Paul says, not only am I appealing to you, but I'm willing to be a part of the solution. But if he has wronged you or owes you anything, put that on my account. Now here's the context of this letter based on the people that were with the Apostle Paul, based upon the location of this house church and based upon other evidence in the New Testament, this letter arrived at the same time as the letter to the church at Colossae, the letter to the Colossians. It's part of the prison letters Paul wrote from prison. Very near the time when he wrote the book of Philippians. You remember in Philippians how the Apostle Paul addresses in detail in chapter 4 how he has found himself in great need. He's found himself abounding. He's thanking them in the book of Philippians for the great gift that they've given him because he was at the mercy of fellow believers to care for him while he was in prison because that didn't come as part of the deal when you were incarcerated. Here's a man who has very little depending in faith upon whatever God provided through the church. And he says to the Philippians, I'm grateful for the provision God has given me through you, but I want you to know that our God can make all grace abound to you for all my needs are supplied by God in Christ Jesus. So could it be that the Apostle Paul truly was willing to use the very little that he had to begin to repay a debt that he didn't owe? Do you see his heart? 
He's saying, hey, if it'll help in the situation. I've, I've got a little more than Onesimus has and, and just put it on my account. If he, if he wronged you, then lay that accusation on me. If he ripped you off, then lay that debt on me and, and I will repay you. You see how he, he put himself into the situation. He wasn't just standing back arm's length saying, you guys need to work this out. He was saying, I want to be a part of the solution. I want to be an expression of mercy and grace because I'm telling you, Philemon, he's saying he is a different man. He is in Christ Jesus now and he is profitable to you. He's profitable to me. It's with reluctance that I'm even sending him back to you because I need him, but I know more than my need for him, you need for him to return so that you can get this thing right. And if I can be a part of that solution, I'm I'm putting myself into it. Extend grace instead of bearing grudge have you ever carried a grudge around that's a silly question isn't it there was a man reading the one ads he, he saw a brand new Corvette very few miles on it being sold for $17. He thought, this can't be right. He called the number. The lady told him, no, it's in pristine condition. It it is in mint condition. Very few miles on it. No no accidents, no nothing. I I just want to sell it for $17. The man went to see the Corvette. It it was the most beautiful vehicle he had ever seen. She she let him drive it and and it 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 was perfect in every way. He he couldn't imagine why. There's got to be some catch. Why is she selling this for $17? And so before he would give her the $17, he said, I, I just need to know. I feel like I'm I'm treating you unfairly by buying this vehicle for $17. Can you tell me why you're selling it so cheap? And she said, yes. My husband ran off with his secretary and he told me to sell that car and send him the money. And I want to send him $17. Guess what? That didn't help her. Not at all. How how much would it take? Revenge always leaves you hungering for more. Revenge is always like drinking poison and hoping it kills somebody else. 
The Apostle Paul knows that. He's, he's challenging Philemon, don't go there. There's a warning sign on that road. Don't take that road. And I am so urgent that you not do that. I'm pleading with you. If he's wronged you or owes you anything, don't let that stand in the way. I'll take care of that. Just don't bear a grudge. Extend grace. It sounds so good on Sunday morning, doesn't it? Respond to the mess with mercy. Extend grace instead of bearing a grudge. It makes perfect sense on Sunday. It's a challenge on Monday. It makes perfect sense when I think about relationships in the future. It, it really troubles me when I think about current relationships that I'm dealing with. But it's real. And it's right in the eyes of God. It's always better to extend grace than to bear a grudge. And so the Apostle Paul goes on in verse 19. He's already implied that he should respond to the mess with mercy. He's already ex extended the challenge to extend grace instead of bearing a grudge. But then thirdly, humbly realize your indebtedness to others. Notice what he says in verse 19, very uncharacteristic of Paul. I, Paul, am writing with my own hand. There were times that the Apostle Paul had what was called an amanuensis or a male secretary who would take down what he, what he said and then Paul would review it and it would be sent. But in this case, he says, I, Paul, am writing with my own hand. This is not through somebody else. It's directly from me. I will repay. I want you to know, Philemon, I'm very sincere about this. I will repay, not to mention to you that you owe me even your own self besides. He's saying to Philemon, you're just as indebted to me as Onesimus is to me because I was used in bringing faith to you. Isn't it interesting when we're offended, we forget how we have offended other people? Isn't it interesting when we struggle to forgive someone, we forget how others have struggled to forgive us. Uh, when we think about debts that others owe us, it's, it's easy for us to forget our indebtedness to others. So the Apostle Paul keeps bringing this whole thing of godliness and Christianity into it because these are godly relationships. There is a great debt that you and I owe to those who poured Christ into us. There's an unfathomable depth of debt that I owe to those Sunday school teachers that some of them still wake up at night in cold sweats and nightmares saying, Kenny Ray! because of the fits I gave them in Sunday school, but they patiently and persistently poured grace into my life. I am indebted to them. 
Why? Because every person I've led to Christ, they have been a part of that process because they helped guide me there myself. So the Apostle Paul is, is talking about the great debt that, that we owe each other. Not to mention our great debt that we owe to Christ for their work in our lives, his work in our lives through them. So if I'm going to respond to the mess with mercy, I'm going to extend grace rather than bear a grudge, then I have to constantly and humbly realize my indebtedness to others. When I offend someone, I really want them to extend grace and mercy to me. But when somebody offends me, that's the last thing I want to do. You know what that borders on? Insanity. Insanity. Now think about the parable Jesus told in Matthew chapter 18. It's about two men who were in debt. Debt was a little different in the New Testament world. If you owed a debt in the New Testament world, you could become the possession of that person. You could become at the disposal of whatever they wanted to do to you and with you. And if you were indebted to the king, you were in big trouble because that could mean your death. And so in verse 21 of Matthew 18, it says this, Then Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how often shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? I mean, that was beyond the requirement. And in, in their world, the number seven was the number of perfection and completion. He, he was thinking, he was really going all out here. Uh, do I forgive him up to seven times? Jesus responded in verse 22 of Matthew 18, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. You've already done the math. I've got to forgive 490 times. But 491, I can let them have it. No, that's not what he's saying. That was another way of Jesus saying into infinity. How many times do you forgive him? Every time he needs it. Why? Because you need to forgive as much as they need to be forgiven. Then he tells a parable. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. It would take more lifetimes than this guy could live to repay it. And so the understatement, verse 25, but says, but as he was unable to pay... His master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that they had and that payment be made, which would be just very little toward the debt that he owed. 
The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Liar, liar, pants on fire. He could not do that. He couldn't do that. He's not the king. He he doesn't have all of the riches of the world. He, He could never do that. But here he's saying, yes, he could. By the way, liar, liar, pants on fire is not in the Bible. But he says, I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. Surprise, surprise, surprise. Nobody was surprised at the desperate plea the man made. Nobody was surprised at the way he would lie to get out of his problem, but people would be shocked in hearing this parable for the first time to hear that the king responded with compassion and let him go. Then verse 28 says, But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. That would be about three months' wages. Not three million years of debt. He found him who owed him a hundred denarii and he laid hands on him and shook him by the throat saying, Pay me what you owe me. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him saying, have patience with me and I will pay you all. You hear how that was an echo of the same man's desperate plea? And he would not but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, They were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. Then the master, after he had called him back in, said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him which would be unending torture, then Jesus says, so my heavenly father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Tell me, who was in the greater prison? The man who chose not to forgive incarcerated himself in torment. That was the greater prison. What was the point of the parable? The forgiven should be forgiven. Now we're shocked when we read that story. We're not so shocked when it's us doing that. We need to realize humbly our indebtedness to others, especially Jesus. Think about all he has forgiven you and all he has forgiven me by his grace. Think about how full and free his forgiveness is. Not because I was good, but because he was good. Not because I was righteous, but because he is righteous. 
not because I was holy, but because he is holy. I am so undeserving of any and every act of grace and forgiveness that Christ has purchased for me on the cross. I'm worthy of none of that, yet he freely gave it to me, and yet I want to withhold mercy and grace from others. Warren Wearsby puts this way. Here Paul uses an illustration of what Jesus Christ has done for us as believers. God's people are so identified with Jesus Christ that God the Father receives them as he receives his son. Think about that. We are accepted because we belong to Christ and are clothed in his righteousness. We certainly cannot approach God with any merit of our own, but God must receive us when we come to him in Christ Jesus. And if God can do that for us, how in the world can we withhold that from others? Quickly, I want us to remember what true forgiveness is. Because the enemy tries to deceive us. Satan tries to blur this in our minds to where he makes it impossible for us to do what we think forgiveness entails. Here's one of his lies. If you forgive them, you're saying what they did is okay. You're condoning their behavior. You're you're saying it was okay if you say, well, I forgive you, Uh, no big deal. No, it was a big deal. It's left permanent scars perhaps in your heart and your life. It's maimed you, so to speak. There is a deep pain there and it's not okay. And if that was part of forgiveness, do you think any of us would ever really forgive if we had to say what they did to me was deserved and I brought it on myself, etc.? No, that's not part of true forgiveness. It's not condoning their behavior. Secondly, it's not conceding to them. Satan will tell you this, don't forgive them. If you forgive them, they win. You don't want to let them off. You don't want to cut them loose. I mean, withhold that forgiveness. They won't be able to eat and they won't be able to sleep. You know what happens when you withhold forgiveness? You won't be able to eat. You won't be able to sleep. And they're sleeping and eating just fine. It's not conceding. For Philemon to forgive Onesimus was not, Onesimus wins, Philemon loses. No, God wins and all is good. It's not conceding. And it's not forgetting. Satan will come back to you and he will say, I thought you forgave them. Why are you still thinking about that? See, if you really forgave them, you would forget because God forgives and forgets. Do you really think the sovereign God of the universe can forget anything? That's a concept. 
today, somebody who has moved, he's not thinking, now, where do they live now? Or, oh, I didn't see that coming. No, he, he knows all. It says he separates our sin as far as the east is from the west. He casts it away. He throws it into the sea of forgetfulness. He, he, he doesn't remember it anymore. When it, when it says that, it's not saying that he wipes it out of his memory. It's, it's, he chooses not to bring it up to remembrance again. If someone has offended you and hurt you or they've offended someone you love and hurt them, if you had to forget that, my friends, you could never forgive. I could never forgive because it's always there. But here's the deal. If you make a commitment to choose not to bring it back to remembrance, you know what you're going to stop doing? You're going to defuse that emotional charge because every time you tell the story, every time you relive it, every time you think about it and you dwell on it, that emotional charge comes back and it gets deeper and it's like the tentacles of Satan are digging into your heart. But if you choose not to bring it up again and you work at that, it begins to lose its emotional charge. I remember sharing a story with a fellow pastor and and I thought he'd be impressed at how much I'd suffered for Jesus. You know what he responded with? Don't get too good at telling that story. I thought, this guy's a moron. Then I thought about it, and I thought, he's very wise. Stop telling the story. It's good to get it out. It's good to process it. But then, then stop just spewing it everywhere you go. Forgiving is not forgetting. I love what Josh McDowell says. God doesn't take away the memory of the pain, but he does take away the pain of the memory. Have you not found that to be true? But it's not forgetting. It's God healing your heart because it's not about the hurt. It's about your heart. And it's not restoring. Satan will say to you, hey, now that you've forgiven them, why don't you get close to them again? Why don't you become best friends again? See, you haven't really forgiven them because you haven't made yourself vulnerable. You haven't trusted them again. Well, the reality is that's not a requirement for forgiveness. Because if someone has deeply hurt you, they have trashed your ability to trust them. They have removed respect that you had for them. You, you have struggled with that and, and for you to make yourself vulnerable, say, okay, let's, let's be buddy-buddy again. That's like crawling in a snake pit and hoping not to be bit again. That trust is gone. It's not restoring to the same level that was there when it happened. So what is forgiveness? It's releasing. It's letting go. It's saying to God, God, I want you to be God. I just want to be me. 
I'm not wired to be you. I'm not capable of being the judge of the universe. I, I, I don't want to try to help you out. I, I release this person to you. And you're saying, well, that sounds easy. No, it's not easy. You may do that a thousand times. But I can tell you from experience, there'll come a day where you release them and you're free. You are free. So what do you think Philemon did? What do you think he did? One thing I know he didn't do, he didn't tear up the letter and throw it in the fire. It's in the book. One thing I know he didn't do is he didn't file this away so he could think about it and process it and then die not ever getting around to it. Why is it in the book? We're not blessed with the rest of the story, but, but, but I just kind of picture that when, when I get to heaven, I'm going to say, who are those two guys that are enjoying each other so much? Oh, that's Onesimus and Philemon. There's a reason it's here. Because that works. Let me ask you another question. Did Philemon say, cool, I'll let Paul pay. <laughs> he doesn't have any money. I'll, I'll make him pay. And he'll, he'll almost be my slave too. I'll just put that debt on him and I'll, I'll keep track of it. I'll keep a ledger. Every time he preaches somewhere and gets a love offering, I'm going to expect him to give me that. You think that happened? No. I would like to think his eyes were opened. Paul, you don't owe me anything. I owe you everything. And Onesimus, you don't owe me anything. I owe you everything. Because together we owe Christ everything. And that's what God's forgiveness looks like. A few moments ago when I prayed and I dared to say, Father, at the beginning of my prayer, do you understand what a privilege that was for me? For me to welcome you as fellow believers who have put your faith and trust in Christ to enter in his presence. You know what a high cost was paid for that? I didn't say, okay, everybody kind of push out all your sin. Everybody kind of clean up. Let's walk into his presence. How do we get there? We don't just say in Jesus' name, rubbing the lamp, hoping it comes true. We, we say in Jesus' name because we know the only reason I'm there is because Jesus has made that possible by shedding his blood and by giving himself for me freely. And ultimately, I need to humbly remember how indebted I am to Christ and learn how to let go and release lest I be tormented the rest of my life. And the apostle Paul knew the pain that awaited Philemon if he chose not to release it. And aren't you glad from the cross that Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. The ultimate example of everything we've talked about is found in Jesus. And the question is today, do you know him? Have you come to know Christ in a transformational way where, where he transformed who you are, the way you think, the way you 
respond, the way you act, the way you react, all of those things are different now because of Jesus. Have you, have you come to that place? If you have, we, we join together at the table not to celebrate who we are, but to cheer who Jesus is. And we come to the table not in our own righteousness, but in the righteousness of Christ. If you've never met him, I'll be here at the front to talk to you about committing your life to him. If you are a believer, regardless of whether you're a member of this church, we invite you to come to the table. If you have committed your life to Christ, gone public with your faith through baptism, come join us as we celebrate the sacrifice of Christ for us. If you're here and you know Christ, but you're not in fellowship with him right now, and there is sin or bitterness or unforgiveness hindering you, please abstain until you have allowed God to do a work in your heart, lest you partake of it in an unworthy manner. We, we want to come not on our own righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ and the experience of his forgiveness. We would like to thank you for joining us for this message from First Baptist Church in Crockett, Texas. First Baptist desires to be a house of prayer with a heart for people, making a difference by making disciples from our neighborhood to the nations. If you would like more information about this ministry, please visit www.firstcrockett.org. Until next time, may God's blessings be upon you.